Hello and welcome to the first edition of Watching China in Europe, a new podcast from the German Marshall Fund that explores Europe's relationship with China and transatlantic cooperation in responding to China. I'm your host, Noah Barkin, Senior Visiting Fellow at GMF and Managing Editor at the Rhodium Group. And today we're going to be discussing Europe's efforts to forge a common strategy for dealing with China. Two years ago this month, amid growing concerns in Europe about China's behavior, the EU came out with a document with the simple title, EU-China, a Strategic Outlook. Now, some might say that an EU strategy in foreign policy is an oxymoron. Forging a common approach among 27 different countries can be next to impossible. And in the past, EU documents like these have often been weak, lowest common denominator texts. But this document was different. I think it's fair to say that it is one of the strongest, if not the strongest, foreign policy document the EU has ever produced. And it included what was a bombshell at the time. Oui, il est vrai, nous sommes des partenaires stratégiques, nous sommes des compétiteurs intéressés aux performances de l'autre et nous sommes des rivaux. That was European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker echoing the key lines from the strategic outlook at a meeting in Paris just weeks after the document was unveiled. The EU had defined China as a partner as an economic competitor, and as a systemic rival. And it was this last label, systemic rival, which got the most attention. I'm very pleased to have as my first guest on the Watching China in Europe podcast, Martin Zellmeier. Martin was Secretary General of the European Commission and the top advisor to Juncker back in 2019. He was also the driving force behind the EU's strategic outlook on China. He is now the European Commission's top representative in Austria. Martin, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Martin, I wanted to start out uh, by looking back at the genesis of this document. Uh, can you give us your personal view of how it came about and how you were able to produce a strategic paper in Brussels that had real teeth. Thank you very much, uh, Noah, for this flattering assessment. I can tell you we at the time, uh, the people in the commission who worked on that, uh, were not aware that this would be such a sensational document as some people later uh, claimed it to be. Um, I would say there were three main reasons for uh, this document to be drafted in the way that it was, and it was very strongly initiated and driven by President Juncker himself. The first one was a sense of urgency, uh, because uh, at the time we were, I would like to recall, at a low point of multilateralism. 
Uh, we were just a couple of months after the famous G7 summit in Charlevoix, Canada, where a U.S. president had uh, refused to sign up to a G7 summit statement that uh, defended the international rules-based system uh, uh, and where we had uh, a very, very complicated international situation that required the Commission, the European Union, uh, to stand together and to define its role in this more volatile international environment and to stand up for multilateralism and international cooperation. The second reason was that uh, there was a sense of opportunity. If you go back in time, the year 2018, after this uh, devastating G7 summit in Canada, saw three moments where the Commission and President Juncker himself saw that the European Union can be a player if it sticks together, if it's united. Uh, that happened in, in three moments. Uh, on the 16th of July 2018, there was an EU-China summit in Beijing. And for the first time in the mandate of President Juncker, uh, China sh showed respect to the European Union, uh, rolled basically out the, the red carpet in Beijing, even signed up to a summit statement, what they hadn't done uh, for a long time. Uh, and uh, I think there was a sense our China wants to get closer to the EU. China is interested in the EU as such uh, and wants to work together with the EU. And of course, President Juncker was an old fox uh, of international politics who was clear that this was not for free, that this was trying to use the vacuum or occupy the vacuum created by the uh, very, very problematic international policy of President Trump. Uh, and therefore, we should not be naive about this. So before we agree to go to going together with China, let's look if we don't have some other partners. And therefore, a couple of days afterwards, on the 17th of July 2018, uh, the Commission president traveled to Japan uh, and signed with, uh, uh, pres with, with Prime Minister Abe of Japan uh, the largest trade agreement the EU had ever signed before between the European Union and Japan, together with a strategic partnership that showed that uh, we have something else to do in the world than immediately go with China. We have another partner. Yes, we regret that the U.S. is not present at the moment, but we are doing a policy based on values, of course, on economic opportunity, but also on the common principles and values that the European Union and Japan shared at that moment. Time was a demonstration the EU and Japan were the last man's uh, or women's standing of uh, multilateralism. And then the last moment was the 25th of July 2018, when President Juncker traveled with the backing of 27 EU leaders to the White House uh, to make a truce on trade with President Trump. Uh, today, it's easy to say we engage with the U.S. At the time, it was slightly more complicated, as some may remember. And uh, it, it was clear that if the European Union is united, we can even get something out of a problematic partner like, like President Trump uh, and uh, out of a very cooperative partner like Japan. So we are not dependent uh, only on going together with China. And that explains why after this sense of urgency uh, after this low moment of multilateralism in uh, Canada at the G7, after this moment of opportunity for the European Union to shape the international order seen in Beijing, Tokyo and Washington, um, the uh, moment in, in uh, February, March 2019 came to define the EU's position on China. And uh, this time, I think there was a very clear operational wish by many leaders who had said we had so often European councils on foreign policy issues, and it was just a talk shop, nothing happened. 
And sometimes even before on China, there was a meeting between China and the so and, and EU member state in the so-called 16 plus one or later 70 plus one format where we were divided uh, and ruled. And this time we wanted to do it differently. But for that, somebody had to draft something as input to the European Council. And for President Juncker, it was clear the only institution that could do this was the Commission. Um, uh, ten days before the European Council that was supposed to have a strategic discussion on China, the Commission drafted this document. It was jointly drafted with the External Action Service. And I remember very well to receive this document on a Wednesday evening. And I was, when I read it, I thought, I cannot show it to President Juncker. It will not meet his uh, standard of an operational document because this was one of the many strategies, Noah, you have described this before, that probably most people have not read afterwards or didn't change anything uh, because our diplomats are Understand to be very careful. Uh, you make such a document on foreign policy as innocent as possible so that it doesn't disturb anybody. And therefore, uh, this was exactly this kind of document. You read it and afterwards you didn't know what it said. And uh, I remember the closest advisors of President Juncker, the Secretary General, the diplomatic advisor, the Secretary General of the External Action Service, uh, got the clear feedback from President Juncker. So if you want to do this document, don't put it on the agenda of the Commission colleague for a political meeting. That's not worth it. And I will not defend it in the European Council. Publish it where you want. It will not change anything. It will also not harm anybody. And I think that got all of us uh, by our honor. And therefore, over a weekend, uh, a small team of people redrafted it. Uh, all director generals of the commission were involved. All heads of cabinet were involved. We went through the document line by line and said, what do we really want to say? And we went through the diplomatic jargon that has to be there sometimes for reasons of necessity uh, and tried to say, what do we really want to say? And what kind of action do we want to recommend to the European Council? Because the document in the end was a proposed, a recommended list of 10 actions that was sent to the European Council 10 days before to ask them to endorse this. And they did 10 days later, all the 10 actions were endorsed um, to say, yeah, China is not only a philosophical matter for the European Union, it requires action from us, it requires unity, but it requires operational agreements, timelines on a number of issues from the screening of foreign direct investment to a, a more or a less naive um, policy on public procurement, uh, foreign state subsidies, the functioning of the WTO, that China is no longer, can be no longer seen as a developing country, but uh, is now a country that claims to be a leading power in the world. And that led also to the assessment, yes, China is also not an innocent player here. They reach uh, their hands, they stretch their hands out to us to be our partners. That's fine on climate change, on Iran. But on other issues, let's be aware, they are a competitor. They want to get into our markets with state aid subsidies that are uh, not in line with EU law. And therefore, we are perhaps a bit too open and too naive about it. There's a lack of reciprocity. And last but not least, we saw the events in Hong Kong already at the time, the treatment of the Uyghurs and other human rights issues, the uh, situation in the South China Sea. And therefore, clearly, they were not only a partner, not only a competitor, but also a rival. And uh, I remember when President Juncker uh, told us, call a spade a spade. And I think that what we as loyal civil servants did. So you mentioned rival, which obviously was quite controversial at the time. I want to talk a little bit more about, about that term. It, it was quite forward-leaning at the time. Uh, I, I don't think German Chancellor Angela Merkel, for example, has ever used that term herself. So the commission, in effect, was 
out ahead of the member states, pushing them to redefine their language on an absolutely crucial foreign policy issue. Is that how you see it? And is that a model for how the EU should be doing foreign policy? Well, I think if you want to do a, a real active foreign policy as the European Union has the power to do it, uh, then we cannot only go always for the lowest common, denomin denom lowest common denominator. We need uh, also sometimes uh, to lean a bit forward. The institution that is able to do this is the Commission that was already geopolitical at the time and that now even calls itself geopolitical because there's no choice. Huh? Uh, the Commission has the role under the treaties to define and initiate action. We may not always get everything what we think is right, but we have the capacity of analysis. We can also work together with the external action service to bring together our foreign policy and economic intelligence on such matters. Because let's not forget the document on China. Yes, it's a foreign policy document, but it's also a document of economic industrial policy where the Commission is the uh, initiator of EU legislation and EU action. So yes, we have to do it, but the Commission cannot do this on its own. The Commission needs to prepare the ground. And I think that was done at the time because many leaders, I, th I think the term rival was not controversial at all, not in the Commission and not among the leaders, because I think most of them were glad that before a crucial summit uh, with China that took then place in April, we had a common template of action. We had a description of the relationship that was not black and white, because there is not only the term rival in there, there's also the term partner and competitor in there. So everybody could say, yes, actually, that's a fair description. Yes, we may not have used rival ourselves because we are careful, we are cautious, but under the heading of the European Union, we dare to say it because actually it's true. And while the United States of America are a partner and often also a competitor, they are never a systemic rival because they share the same values that we as European Union share on the rule of law, on democracy, on pluralism, on the freedom of the media. But China doesn't share it. Therefore, it's a correct assessment. And therefore, it wasn't contested by any of the leaders 10 days later when it was discussed around the table of the European Council. It was, in my recollection, one of the most productive meetings of the European Council in a long time. The spring meeting of the European Council is always dedicated to economic policy, this time with a specific framing on China. And if you look at the list of actions that were adopted there by the European Council, it's the first time that 27 member states agree on a concrete set of action on industrial policy, on reciprocity, both in economic policy and in trade policy. And uh, if you look today, the list of action has been basically completed uh, fitting the three description competitor, uh, partner and rival of China. Now, now I, I'm going to push back a little bit. Some, I think some people might say that if you need three arguably contradictory terms, partner, competitor and rival to define your strategy, then you don't have a strategy at all, that this is the opposite of being geopolitical. Um, you have what is a description of a very complex relationship. What do you, what do you say to that? First, I would say uh, that these three terms that got so much attention were not the strategy. They were the starting point for the strategy. And I think uh, President Juncker himself recall him saying to uh, the, the, the president of China, um, who was not happy that we called them rival, 
um, look, you see, we have called you partner, competitor, and rival, so you can choose what you like. Uh, so it was also, uh, that was a way of jokingly um, limiting the impact of this. But on the other side, it was the starting point of defining our actions. Huh? And therefore, the three terms, you're absolutely right, would not have been sufficient for a strategy. The strategy were the 10 actions that followed afterwards. Uh, one of them was, for example, on climate change. Huh? Let's be clear. China wanted to team up with us on climate change, but at that moment in time, hadn't made any commitment. Huh? So we put in a very concrete commitment that China has to peak its emission in 2030, uh, because otherwise the Paris uh, Agreement objective would not be fulfilled. And so it took a bit of time, but I think a bit later, uh, China went into this direction. So that, that helped. Huh? We said we need reciprocity in our trade relations, because we were disappointed as European Union. We had now negotiated President Juncker and his team himself for four years on uh, different uh, moments of different summits, on concrete commitments of China on investment, on geographic uh, origins, and on, uh, uh, and, uh, and on aviation. And there were only friendly words, but no progress. It was always pushed back. All deadlines promised were not met. Uh, and uh, therefore, it was very clear, if you want to be serious with us, there has to be reciprocity. So it was also the beginning of the EU speaking the language of power, but not in a one-sided way, but using the multifaceted uh, uh, nature of the relationship. I would say those who say, if you use three terms for a partnership or for a relation with a third country, then you... Have, not, have no strategy, I think that is a bit naive uh, because geopolitics is not black and white. In particular, as we are not also not with China in a Cold War situation, we are in a situation where the European Union wants to work with everybody in the world on multilateralism, even with difficult partners, but it's also very clear with some we are closer, like with the US, than with others who have uh, are an autocratic a system with a systemically different orientation that they don't hide. So. Therefore, I would say it was a clear definition of our relationship. It was not black and white. It, it showed the gray zones, the, the multifaceted sides, but uh, it was honest and it was broadly shared by all member states. I want to fast forward to the present day. Uh, this paper was published two years ago, this month. A lot has changed since then. We've seen pandemic breakout in China and sweep across the globe. We've seen a security crackdown by Chinese authorities in Hong Kong, which you, you meant, touched on earlier. We've learned new details about the repression of the Uyghurs, China's Muslim minority in, in Xinjiang. And we've seen a much more assertive China abroad. Mass diplomacy, wolf warrior diplomacy, now vaccine diplomacy. At what point do we need to consider changing or adapting uh, the EU's approach. Uh, does this strategic outlook become obsolete at, at some point? Well, the strategic outlook is just a, a snapshot of a particular moment in history. I think the EU leaders and the Commission itself uh, still considers the document to be valid today. Uh, it was just in an, another interesting document that was modeled on the EU-China strategic outlook was reiterated. Uh, you may uh, know, or certainly you know that, Noah, but perhaps not everybody in the audience knows that, that uh, on the 2nd of December of last year, the Commission adopted a similar document on a new EU-US agenda for global change. Uh, so on our 
new transatlantic partnership. And it's interesting that in this document, we explicitly refer to the EU-China strategic outlook and say, well, on that one, we have said China is a partner, a competitor and a, a systemic rival. And that stands because there are issues with the US where we need to work together on China. But we don't decouple from China. Uh, we have a, more, a, a stronger proximity with the US, notably now with the new uh, more pro-multilateralism-driven uh, administration under President Biden. So this is a document, if you compare the 2nd of December document uh, adopted by the Geopolitical Commission of President von der Leyen with the EU-China outlook of, uh, of two years ago, they're very complementary. They say, I think, the same thing. Uh, our closest partner is the US, even though we have sometimes differences on this or that uh, uh, competition issue. Uh, we have also a partnership with China, but this partnership has to grow. And China is, uh, is tested also by us uh, because we will not fail to mention human rights issues and the issues that define the systemic rivalry. I would say today... Uh, and here I speak only in a private capacity as an observer because I'm not uh, involved in the direct machinery of that. But I think we all know you mentioned uh, the lessons of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, where if you read the opinion polls, uh, the image of China has not uh, become better uh, after uh, mass diplomacy. Uh, telling everybody that we are the best is never a good advice in international relations, in particular if everybody is suffering and everybody has contributed in one way or the other uh, to the outbreak and to the spread of, of, of this pandemic. Uh, and therefore, I think now it is even more true than what we said two years before, that yes, China is a partner on climate change, and we welcome that they have made for the first time now a commitment uh, to reach climate neutrality, We hope to continue to work together with China on issues like Iran, as we do since a long time, where China was a reliable partner, and we hope that we get back to it, even though you can never turn the clock totally back, as we know. Uh, but we will also not fail to mention the systemic issues. Our high representative, Vice President of the Commission, Josef Borrell, has uh, in, the in the first phase of the pandemic said very clearly there is even a systemic war out there. There is, a, uh, in, in parallel to the pandemic, there's an infodemic uh, The war of diplomacy, the war of words, the war of misinformation was very clearly identified by the highest foreign policy representative of the European Union in his personal blog. And I think that sums up very wisely uh, and accurately where we are today. So I would say, in short, that uh, the EU-China uh, strategic outlook is still valid. The list of action has been exhausted because all of the actions have been, been done, uh, including the comprehensive agreement on investment that was concluded as planned at the time by the end of 2020. Therefore, it was part of this strategy. It was not surprising that it was done. It was uh, foreseen and planned, but it's only one element. And I think we now need to see in the coming years how we can have a demanding agenda with China where we engage with them, but also force them to engage with us on the basis of reciprocity and continuous dialogue on human rights where the European Union cannot let loose. I want to touch on the comprehensive agreement on investment, which, uh, as you mentioned, has been under negotiation for uh, quite some time. And in the strategic outlook, uh, it, it was mentioned as a, uh, a goal to conclude this. But nonetheless, it has drawn a great deal of criticism. And I think it, it perhaps points to the broader issue of compartmentalization in the China relationship. The idea that you can do an investment deal on Monday, 
threatened China with human rights sanctions on Tuesday, perhaps go after China in the WTO for unfair trade practices on Wednesday. Um, is this how this, uh, this strategy should be working or this approach to China? I said before that geopolitics is not black and white. And if you are an adult and realistic player in international relations, uh, that's uh, sometimes how you have to work. Huh? Uh, we are learning here from the best. The United States of America is doing exactly this. Huh? Uh, on, on Monday, they conclude a phase one agreement, even under President Trump with, with China, that is very beneficial for the U.S. industry. Uh, and uh, is, I think our comprehensive agreement on investment uh, is not even delivering these benefits for the European industry. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's perhaps a similar agreement, but it's uh, in, a, in, a, in a small section, so it's just the beginning. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, there are trade sanctions, and on, 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 on Wednesday, there's a resolution voted on Hong Kong uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the House. Huh? Therefore, um, if you're an adult pl player in international relationship, you have probably to look at the multifaceted situation of partner, competitor, and rival. You have, however, to make sure that there's always a link. And I'm proud that the Commission, the institution for which I'm working, made very sure uh, that in the comprehensive agreement on investment, the human rights issue and the labor rights issue is clearly flagged uh, in the preambula already. Some may say, well, it's not good enough, but uh, international relations work in this way that we go step by step. Also an investment, this is just a step. But let's not forget where we were two years ago. Two years ago, we were already negotiating six years this comprehensive agreement. It had made no step forwards. Uh, it was, it's a huge disadvantage for the European industry that our market is open, but uh, our industry cannot invest under uh, terms of reciprocity on the Chinese market. The US industry can do this today. Our industry has, uh, can make with this agreement a huge step forward. Therefore, I think it is fully in line with the strategy endorsed by all 27 and also welcomed at the time by the European Parliament. And it is completed by these uh, additional and integrated commitments on human rights, labor rights and other. We all know that they could be better if China would be another partner. But I think under the circumstances uh, that we have, uh, it is uh, a rather solid agreement. Uh, and therefore, uh, I think it's good that at the beginning of this uh, process towards the agreement was the EU-China strategic outlook, followed a couple of days later by European Council and a summit in Paris with President Xi, President Macron, Chancellor Merkel and uh, President Juncker, the first time that the President of the Commission was invited for something like that. And it was concluded at the end of 2020 by the agreement in principle, again with the presence of President Macron, uh, Chancellor Merkel and the president uh, of the commission, now Ursula von der Leyen. So I think we have come full circle, but that is not the end of this relationship. It's just a small stone that cannot uh, cover the whole respects uh, of our comp complicated relationship that will remain complicated for quite some time. You mentioned the forced labor issue, which has become quite controversial. Of course, this agreement needs to be approved in the European Parliament. And I think some people in the Parliament are calling for China to perhaps deliver stronger commitments, more binding commitments to implement ILO forced labor conventions. Do you think that's necessary for this agreement to be approved in the Parliament, that China moves, does more than what it's, what it's done in the in the current text? I think we all wish that uh, China is more forthcoming on human rights and labor issues, but uh, I think we all should be also realistic what is achievable. 
And I think that's a decision that at the end of the day, only the European Parliament can make, which uh, has is the democratic legislature in this field and has to ratify this. Uh, I think it will be a complicated discussion. And I think the full details of this uh, long agreement that has been negotiated for seven years will have to be uh, studied carefully and assessed by the European Parliament. But I think uh, personally uh, that this agreement is an important step forward towards reciprocity. I think it is uh, not in vain that somebody like President Macron pushed for it, uh, understanding, seeing the world as it is. I remember uh, the advisor of President Obama uh, calling his uh, own book about the 10 years in the Obama administration, the world as it is, because sometimes the world is not as we like it should be, uh, and we can make it every day a bit better by small steps. And I think this agreement is a small steps. It's by no means a sufficient step, but it is at least the beginning of a process towards engagement. The alternative would be to disengage with China. And this was the decision that in 2018, we deliberately didn't put on the agenda of the European Council. Nobody asked for that because uh, that would be also naive. The European Union is not alone in the world. We have to engage with complicated partners, whether they are Russia, whether they are Turkey, whether they are um, China or whether they are the US under President uh, Trump. Uh, All these has disadvantages and complicated and uncomfortable situation. But the European Union as a player can engage, put its values on the table. And we, we don't find everyday partners like Japan with whom we share all our values and all our interest in a particular field. Uh, therefore, we have to see, as Ben Rhodes said at the time, the world as it is and work with it. Is this strategic autonomy in action, this uh, investment agreement? I think it is one element of it, but I would not overrate here uh, the world strategic autonomy. The world strategic autonomy is very often misunderstood. It's uh, misunderstood by some that we could have as European Union equidistance to the US and China and would be an own player that uh, can one day go with one part and one day with the other. That is uh, not the situation. As I said at the beginning, and as our uh, EU-US agenda for global change of the 2nd of December of last year says, our preferred partner is the transatlantic partnership because it's based on our common values and a long common history. Europe is not neutral in this respect. Therefore, strategic autonomy or sovereignty is a term that uh, should be properly understood as open strategic economy, working together with partners that share our values, also working with partners that have a different system if this is a way to bring them into the direction of a more cooperative international uh, legal and multilateral order. That, I think, is the way. We will not be able, as some thought in the past, they thought China joins the WTO and tomorrow there will be a modern market economy and democracy. I think this agenda uh, was understandable. Many shared it, but it has failed. It was perhaps naive and misunderstood the nature of this economic and political giant China to whom we should also, in this history, we should also show respect. Uh, But that doesn't mean that the opposite of uh, the other extreme is now right. We should decouple. No, I think we need both. We need engagement, criticism, partnership, and rivalry. And rivalry means also we as Europeans have to stand up. And strategic autonomy is only the right place if it means we team up as 27 and don't allow anybody else to divide us. The most important thing for me of the EU-China strategic outlook was that it came first, Then was a European Council where all 27 agreed uh, to it. And then came only other meetings with President uh, Xi or the uh, 16 plus one format. That's the right order. Not to have meetings with China would not be right because we as European Union stand for multilateralism, for dialogue, 
also with difficult partners at difficult times. I'd like to play another clip of current European Commission President uh, Ursula von der Leyen speaking in January. So what China is concerned, we as the European Union, we know exactly on what side of the table we're sitting. We are sitting on the side of the democracies next to our American friends. European capitals have been adamant that they don't want to choose between Washington and Beijing. Now, when Donald Trump was sitting in the White House, perhaps that was a no-brainer. But with Biden as president, the dynamic has obviously changed. Biden made an impassioned plea last month at the Munich Security Conference for transatlantic cooperation on China. I think von der Leyen's remarks are pretty clear. How do you think this is going to play out? I'm sure that if you ask uh capitals in the European Union, uh, on which side do you stand? If you have to choose, then I think they all would say on the side of the United States and would say exactly the same what President von der Leyen has said. But of course, in, an, in a world that is a multipolar system, a European Union would prefer not to have to choose, but to have cooperative relationships with as many countries, nations, powers as possible. Uh, and I think that's our approach. Huh? Our uh, joint communication on EU-US relations uh, now after the Biden administration uh, was elected makes that very clear. Our preferred and closest partnership is that with the United States. And there is no doubt about it for historic, democratic, pluralistic and many, many other reasons. This is our partner in values. Even, even under President Trump, it was the case. Now it's even stronger the case. Huh? But we have also other partners in the world. We will have now in a couple of weeks a summit uh, with, with, with uh, India. Uh, we will uh, continue to work with Japan uh, on the basis of our EU-Asia connectivity strategy that the former President Juncker, uh, together with Prime Minister Abe, both of them are no longer there, but their successors continue this work. They both inaugurated that in September 2019. So connectivity, working together, cooperation across borders with all partners is essential, whether this is on fighting uh, climate change, fighting the pandemic, uh, or working for a safer, more prosperous world in which Uh, the wealth of our planet is shared and more equally divided. Huh? That, that's the objective of the Commission. The Commission has multilateralism in its genes, uh, and it has also the values of democracies uh, in our treaties and in our minds and hearts. And I think that's what President von der Leyen said very clearly. We are sitting next to the United States of America. We'll work together with them also on China, as we are probably more like-minded than many others, uh, like we are with Japan. Uh, but there will be issues where we cannot ignore that China is a very important power, a very important market, but also somebody who is essential uh, for the shaping of the new world order as it is now emerging. Uh, and therefore is not choosing, but is having clear preferences and clear values that are our compass. Well, Martin, we're going to end it there. Thanks so much for joining me. This was a really interesting discussion, and I look forward to continuing this discussion in the future. Certainly the EU-China relationship is going to remain very much in the spotlight. So thanks again. Thanks for the interesting conversation, Noah, and stay safe and healthy. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.